0: Welcome to Upon Reflection, a podcast about reasoning, well-being, and technology. I'm Nick Bird. I study the philosophy of cognitive science and the cognitive science of philosophy. In this episode, I'm going to read my 2021 paper in Metaphilosophy, titled Bounded Reflectivism and Epistemic Identity. Does reflective reasoning help or hinder our judgment? In this paper, I take a middle view between reflectivism and anti-reflectivism that I call bounded reflectivism. The idea is that reflection is a tool, and we can use it to improve our judgment or to do other things, like defend the beliefs that we consider essential to our identity. As always, free preprints of my papers are available on my CV at birdnick.com forward slash CV under publications. This podcast was sponsored by Paying Green's Carbon Easy. CarbonEasy makes it easy for small and medium-sized businesses worldwide to reduce their carbon footprint in a measurable and publicly recognizable way. Find out about how your company can meet its carbon goals at carboneasy.sjv.io forward slash bird. That link will also be in the description. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe wherever you find podcasts, follow on Twitter at bird underscore nick, on Facebook at bird_nick, or on the other platforms. Comments and questions can be submitted at birdnick.com forward slash contact. And if you like the podcast, you can tell people about it online, in person, in a review. Take your pick. Bounded reflectivism and epistemic identity. Abstract. Reflectivists consider reflective reasoning crucial for good judgment and action. Anti-reflectivists deny that reflection delivers what these reflectivists seek. Alas, the evidence is mixed, so does reflection confer normative value or not? This paper argues for a middle way. Reflection can confer normative value, but its ability to do so is bound by factors such as what we might call epistemic identity, an identity that involves particular beliefs, for example, religious or political identities. We may reflectively defend our identities' beliefs rather than reflect open-mindedly to adapt to whatever beliefs cohere with the best arguments and evidence. This bounded reflectivism is explicated with an algorithmic model of reflection, synthesized from philosophy and science, and it yields testable predictions, psychometric implications, and realistic metaphilosophical suggestions. For example, Overcoming motivated reflection may require embracing epistemic identity rather than veiling it a la John Rawls's Veil of Ignorance. So bounded reflectivism should be preferred to views offering anything less than this. Quote, All men of reflection are either free from erroneous prepossessions or can divest themselves of them. End quote. Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, 1787. Quote, Even advanced reflection and training does not insulate one from illusion. Physics graduate students and postdoctoral researchers still experience the characteristic cognitive perceptual illusions of naive impetus theory physics." Jennifer Nagel, 2012. We endorse or reject our impulses by determining whether they are consistent with the ways in which we identify ourselves. You are a mother of some particular children, a citizen of a particular country, an adherent of a particular religion, and you act accordingly, caring for your children because they are your children, fighting for your country because you are its citizen, refusing to fight because you are a Quaker, and so on. End quote. Christine Korsgaard, 1996. You agreed to cover the tip for lunch with your friend. So as you stand up from the table, you put down an amount of money that feels right. Your friend glances at the money and appears Surprised. So you do some calculation in your head and realize that you forgot to factor in your friend's portion of the bill and add some money to the gratuity. On the way out of the restaurant, your friend asks you about your political party's latest scandal. You immediately play defense, rehearsing various rationalizations of the scandal. After your monologue, your friend recalls that you criticized the opposing party for the same kind of scandal in the last election. This story reveals a puzzle about reflective reasoning. Reflection often helps, but reflection can also hinder our reasoning. Reflection is crucial for double-checking and correcting our reasoning, but reflection can also be used to rationalize bad reasoning when we feel that our cherished beliefs are under attack. This puzzle about reflection is also manifested in scholarly debates about reflection. Reflectivists claim that reflection is crucial for good judgment and action, but anti-reflectivists admit that reflection can lead us astray, So what gives? Does reflection help, or does it hinder our reasoning? To address this puzzle about reflection, I offer a middle way between reflectivism and anti-reflectivism. Reflection does not necessarily make our reasoning good or bad. Rather, reflection is a tool. Its utility depends largely upon other factors, such as our goals. For instance, when someone wants to defend the beliefs with which they most identify, reflection may not satisfy nonpartisan epistemic standards. In other words, reflection's quality can be bound by the beliefs that we tie to our identity. The remainder of the paper explains, argues for, and elaborates on how this notion of epistemic identity leads to the view that I call bounded reflectivism. Section 1 lays out the theory and evidence about the normative value of reflection. Section 2 introduces the notion of epistemic identity and its potential impact on reflection. Section 3 synthesizes the bounded reflectivist model of reflection from the prior sections and relevant literature. Section 4 outlines the philosophical and scientific implications of bounded reflectivism, and Section 5 offers some concluding remarks. Section 1. What's so great about reflection? Reflective reasoning is a mainstay in the history of ideas. John Dorris puts it this way, "...a preoccupation with reflection is arguably the Western philosophical tradition's most distinctive feature in both historical and contemporary contexts." This concept of reflection is familiar. A famous first-person description of reflection comes from Christine Korsgaard, quote, "...I find myself with a powerful impulse to believe, but I back up and bring that impulse into view, and then I have a certain distance. Now the impulse doesn't dominate me, and I have a problem. Shall I believe?" End quote. Reflection is a thriving area in researching cognitive science as well. Well-known titles like Thinking Fast and Slow have popularized much of this research on reflective and unreflective reasoning. So reviewing the literature on the value of reflective reasoning involves both philosophical theory and scientific investigation. 1.1 Theory: Reflectivism and anti-reflectivism. Reflective reasoning is said to be more deliberate, that is less automatic, and more consciously represented than unreflective reasoning. So tests of reflection have been designed to lure us into automatically accepting a believable conclusion that, if we stop and consciously represent all of the relevant information, we could realize is actually incorrect. For instance, quote, if we know that flowers have petals and that roses have petals, can we conclude that roses are flowers, end quote. Our prior belief that roses are flowers lures us into automatically accepting the inference. If, however, we deliberately stop ourselves from accepting this inference and think about the logical structure of that question, that is, if we reflect, then we can realize that the inference is fallacious. It affirms the consequent. In addition to operationalizing reflection, reflection tests show why reflection can be valuable. Reflection can be instrumental in overcoming misleading heuristics and biases, such as the tendency to accept conclusions that align with our prior beliefs. Of course, the value of reflection is a topic of debate. Many philosophers take reflection to be crucial for obtaining various intellectual goods. We can call such philosophers reflectivists. Consider a selection of reflectivism in history. Reflective persons were said to eliminate error from our conflicting moral intuitions via appeal to general rules or formulae. Quote, reflective equilibrium, end quote, was said to be necessary to discern or justify principles of logic and justice. Reflective agency was said to be important to understanding human action. Quote, reflective knowledge, end quote, was said to be a distinctive capacity of humans that's necessary to understand our beliefs in context, and quote, how they come about, end quote. Quote, reflective endorsement, end quote, was said to be necessary for morality to have normative force. Quote, reflective scrutiny, end quote, was said to be necessary for evaluating our ethical framework from within as opposed to evaluating neutrally from the outside or by merely re-expressing itself. There are probably more instances of reflectivism in philosophy. While an exhaustive catalog of each instance is a valuable historical project, the goal of this section is just to introduce reflectivism's ongoing and widespread presence in philosophy. Opposing reflectivism, of course, is anti-reflectivism. Anti-reflectivists argue that reflection cannot do or be what reflectivists think. Consider an example of anti-reflectivism. Quote, reflection, by and large, does not provide for greater reliability. It does not, by and large, serve to guard against errors to which we would otherwise be susceptible. It does not, by and large, aid in the much-needed project of cognitive improvement. It creates the illusion that it does all of these things, but it does not do any of them. End quote. Additional examples of anti-reflectivism include arguments that reflection cannot be a virtue, that, quote, reflection on our beliefs and decisions distorts our view of our own mental processes, end quote, and that reflection does not give us the self-knowledge that many reflectivists imagine. So who's right? The reflectivists or the anti-reflectivists? In my view, both reflectivists and anti-reflectivists get something right, Reflectivists are right to think that reflective reasoning delivers some of the normative value that reflectivists care about. And anti-reflectivists are right, however, to think that reflectivists seem to be unduly optimistic about reflection. In some circumstances, reflection lacks the proposed normative value, and worse, in other circumstances, reflection can produce normative disvalue. By considering the evidence for these claims, we can begin to see the shape of this middle way that the paper develops. 1.2. Evidence, good and bad reflection. Public discourse in the United States often focuses on the ways in which online fake news can be weaponized to undermine democracy. Reddit's CEO announced cooperation with federal investigations on the dissemination of fake news on its website and concluded with the belief that, quote, The biggest risk we face as Americans is our own ability to discern reality from nonsense, end quote. Part of the worry was that reasoning is politically partisan. Some researchers find evidence for such partisan reasoning. For example, multiple studies of more than a thousand people found that political conservatives were far more likely to consider an action morally wrong if it was performed by a left-wing than by a right-wing person. And in a meta-analysis of more than 50 studies involving more than 18,000 people, liberals and conservatives rated politically congenial information as more valid, of higher quality, or more acceptable than politically uncongenial information. Yet even though reflection correlated positively with politically biased news evaluation among more than 400 U.S. adults, the same experiment found that reflection also correlated positively with better news discernment. It is mixed evidence like this that makes one wonder whether reflection helps or whether it hinders our reasoning. 1.2.1 Reflection as a Solution in two studies of more than 800 participants, people who scored better on certain reflection tests were significantly more likely to correctly estimate the accuracy of fake news and significantly less likely to share fake news, even when the source of the news was removed and when headlines aligned with their partisan identity. Across two other studies of about 2,000 participants, such reflection predicted more reliance on mainstream news sources over hyperpartisan and fake news. In other studies, reflective reasoning was associated with more desirable reasoning in everyday and seemingly high-stakes contexts such as political reasoning. These findings suggest that reflective reasoning can be part of the solution to problems with our ability to discern reality from nonsense. 1.2.2 Reflection as ineffective Unfortunately, reflective reasoning is not a panacea. Consider the illusory truth effect, Multiple studies of more than a thousand people found that encountering false information repeatedly made people more likely to believe it, regardless of their performance on reflection tests. These findings suggest that some reasoning problems might be immune to reflection. 1.2.3 Reflection as a problem In fact, reflection might make matters worse multiple experiments found that people who are more likely to reason reflectively are also more likely to reflect in ways that serve their partisan identities. For instance, Democrats in the United States are far more likely to endorse the claim that there is, quote, solid evidence, end quote, of global warming than Republicans in the United States. Also, when participants were told that open-minded people who accept climate change are more likely to get the correct answers on the Cognitive Reflection Test, or CRT, Right-leaning participants were less likely to report that the CRT was valid, while left-leaning participants were more likely to report that the CRT was valid. Crucially, this partisan evaluation of the CRT increased, rather than decreased, among more reflective participants. In another experiment, participants interpreted fictional studies. More reflective participants were more likely to correctly interpret the findings of studies about non-politicized topics. Alas, when interpreting studies about politically salient topics like gun control policy, both left-leaning and right-leaning individuals were more likely to misinterpret evidence that challenged their policy preferences. And once again, this partisan evaluation of evidence was more dramatic among more reflective participants. In more recent studies, reflecting on initial judgments about real and fake news improved people's truth discernment, but people still, upon reflection, judged politically concordant news, to be more accurate than discordant news. These findings suggest that while reflection can help reasoning in some cases, reflection may also hinder our reasoning. Overall, these data suggest that reflection can be part of the problem, insufficiently effective, or else part of the solution. The mixed results are similar to what launched the bounded rationality literature, which attempts to explain how rationality can retain its normative value while being less perfect than originally suggested. So the current project involves explaining how some of the normative value that reflectivists attribute to reflection can be retained even if, as anti-reflectivists have argued, the value is bounded in ways that reflectivists may not have originally suggested. One specific bound on reflectivism is a kind of partisanship that I call epistemic identity. Section 2. Epistemic Identity Korsgaard famously discusses the role of practical identity in reflection. Another form of identity is what I call epistemic identity, the phenomenon of treating certain beliefs as part of one's identity. Suppose that I identify with a religion. If you criticize some aspect of my religion, then I might reflectively defend my religious beliefs rather than dispassionately submit to the best arguments and evidence. In short, I might prioritize my epistemic identity over other epistemic goods. Or suppose that you identify with a particular political party, one that explicitly codifies its ideological commitments in a party platform that's recited in its public speeches, advertisements, and so on. In other words, you identify not only with the party, but also with its values and its beliefs. In this case, your political identity is an epistemic identity. We have already encountered evidence of an effect of epistemic identity on reflection. There's also evidence, however, that the impact of epistemic identity on reasoning is more general. For instance, judgments about evidence of global warming are more correlated with self-reported political ideology in the United States than in any of the other 25 Western developed countries tested. But the United States is not alone. Italian citizens have also been found to consider politically concordant news to be more plausible. Given these and similar data, it's unsurprising that identity has become an increasingly common part of reasoning research. 2.1 Proximal and Distal Effects of Epistemic Identity We can distinguish between proximal and distal influences on action. Likewise, epistemic identities can have proximal and distal influences on our reflective reasoning. Epistemic identities have proximal influences on our reflective reasoning when they determine how our reflective reasoning proceeds in any given moment. For example, you might be familiar with an outstandingly opinionated and uncivil person who is quick to share his pet beliefs and immediately dismiss any opposing evidence and arguments, sometimes referred to anecdotally as an obnoxious uncle. Of course, Partisanship can influence reflection in more distal ways. For example, some have argued that philosophers may be implicitly influenced by epistemic identity, thereby shaping the broader philosophical discourse over time. 2.1.1 Distal Effects of Epistemic Identity Epistemic identities can have subtle, longitudinal influences on not only reasoning in general, but also reflective reasoning in particular. Our epistemic identities can influence what we seek, what we attend to, what we perceive, and thereby what we remember, whom we listen to, and how we reason. So when we represent our memories consciously in order to reason about them deliberately, we're working with systematically biased priors. For example, we may be more likely to seek out, attend to, perceive, and remember the successes and unfair criticisms of our own group, than competing groups, and less likely to seek out, attend to, perceive, and remember the failures and level-headed criticisms of our group than competing groups. This is why one epistemic difference between two groups can result from multiple polarizing processes from each group. This is also part of the reason why providing people with more information does not always reduce polarization. Polarization can occur not only while receiving information, but also while remembering it. 2.1.2 Proximate Effects of Epistemic Identity The distal influences of epistemic identity can result in proximate impacts of epistemic identity. This identity-based reasoning can also explain why people follow their leaders more than they follow logic. That is, they adopt their leaders' policies even when doing so deviates from the logical conclusions of their own professed ideals, principles, and values. Further research might reveal if identity-driven thinking can also explain the opening puzzle, how reflection's impact may change from helpful or hurtful from one moment to the next. One way to explain this puzzle is to admit that epistemic identity is more likely to negatively influence reflective reasoning in adversarial contexts than in open-minded contexts. 2.2. If you can't beat epistemic identity, embrace it. Some have suggested that the solution to the problem of epistemic identity involves imagining someone else's identity. Others have suggested that we should activate a superordinate identity. My suggestion is a combination of these suggestions. To overcome the undesirable impacts of epistemic identities, we will need to appeal to shared, superordinate epistemic identities. Consider an example. When a colleague and I are reflectively doubling down on a political disagreement, then we might do well to stop and ask, Although we disagree, what should we think about this, as scientists? Because we both identify as scientists and we agree about the standards of scientific reasoning, undesired polarization may be less likely when we reflect as scientists who share epistemic standards than when we reflect as political partisans employing politically congruent epistemic standards. Depending on the context, shared identities need not be shared by everyone they may only need to be shared by those involved in the undesirable polarized disagreement. For instance, within a politically divided country, appealing to a shared national identity as opposed to, say, a globalist or international identity, might lead to productive agreement. As the scope of discourse expands to include stakeholders in other countries or groups, however, appealing to broader identities may be required to overcome polarization and divisiveness. So epistemic identity may not be only a problem, it may also be part of the solution. In fact, some data confirm this. For instance, when U.S. Republicans' party identity was threatened by questions about the deterioration of the Republican Party, and then they were told that a majority of Republicans agree about global warming and are taking action to combat climate change, they were significantly more likely to endorse and care about climate change than if they were merely asked to be even-handed in their evaluation of climate change. This suggests that threatening one's epistemic identity can lead not only to undesirable judgments, but also to desirable outcomes, depending on the reasoning context. So when we cannot beat epistemic identity, we might need to embrace it. Section 3. The Bounded Reflectivist Model of Reflection We now have the psychological construct, the evidence, and one of the mechanisms motivating the bounded reflectivist model of reflection. Reflection is said to be deliberate and conscious. Reflection can deliver goods that reflectivists seek, but reflection can also hinder our reasoning in ways that anti-reflectivists have suggested sometimes as a result of, among other things, epistemic identity. The bounded reflectivist model of reflection that I have in mind, however, is based on a more complete account of reflection, including the triggers of reflection, the outcomes of reflection, and the possible psychological paths between them. 3.1 Visualizing the Bounded Reflectivist Model To make it easier to follow the written explanation of the model, the bounded reflectivist model is visualized algorithmically in Figure 1. As I see it, there may be multiple, albeit finite, ways to arrange the processing steps and decision nodes in this model of reflection that remain compatible with the account of reflection developed in this paper. For instance, the order of the triggers of reflection outside the large box labeled quote reflection, end quote, and the steps of reflection inside the large box labeled quote reflection, end quote, could be slightly rearranged without violating bounded reflectivism. Moreover, there could be cases in which reasoning involves multiple looping paths through this model, for example, from an intuition to reflection about that intuition to then another intuition and so forth. 3.2. When reflection is not triggered. The visualization illustrates how tasks can prompt either an autonomous response or reflection. If the task is not novel, high stakes, or imaginative, then reflection will probably not be triggered. Rather, an autonomous response will occur. Whether we accept the autonomous response or reflect on it will depend on whether we detect conflict between the autonomous response and some other seemingly relevant response, or whether we have a feeling of rightness about the autonomous response. If no conflict is detected and one's feeling of rightness is high, then the autonomous response is probably accepted. Of course, our acceptance of an autonomous response might be influenced by epistemic identity. After all, we are more likely to unreflectively endorse conclusions that comply with our prior beliefs even when doing so is logically fallacious. 3.3. Triggering Reflection Some have proposed that reflection is triggered by either a task or by how confident one feels about one's autonomous response. Together these potential triggers can explain performance on reflection tests. Reflection tests are designed to lure us into unreflectively accepting a particular answer that is, upon reflection, incorrect. For instance, the original bat and ball problem lures people to the 10 cents answer. Quote, a bat and a ball cost ten in total. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? End quote. A recent variant of the famous bat and ball problem, however, may not do this. Quote, a bat and a ball cost $0.96 cents in total. The bat costs $0.02 cents more than the ball. How much does the ball cost?" This variant, unlike the original version, does not lure participants toward a particular incorrect answer, so there's no obvious reason to think that the correct response on this question involves deliberately inhibiting, feeling right about, or reflecting on a particular autonomous response. Some suggest, however, that reflection can also be triggered by task novelty, stakes, or imagination. Novelty can explain how reflection could be triggered by the non-lured bat ball problem. While the non-lured problem does not elicit a particular autonomous response like its predecessor, reflection might nonetheless be triggered for reasoners who find that this mathematical task is novel, high stakes, or imaginative. Of course, according to the deliberate and conscious account of reflection, reflection could be occurring only if participants consciously represent some of their reasoning and deliberately prevent themselves from immediately accepting answers that spring to mind while consciously reasoning. 3.4. When reflection is triggered. Once triggered, there are a few steps within the reflection process that could result in multiple different outcomes. Factors such as epistemic identity can influence which outcome occurs, and crucially, the outcome of reflection can depend on the outcomes that occur at each step. 3.4.1 one versus multiple options. The first step of reflection involves considering options. p seems true, but is it? Might q be true instead? What about not p? The search for options might end with an empty set of options, for example, I don't know, or else get interrupted, making a reasoner more likely to opt for their unreflective response, for example, in cases of cognitive load. Alternatively, the search can reveal one or more options, If only one option is considered, either because someone reflects in a closed-minded manner or for some other reason, then we can reflectively rationalize it. If more options are considered, either because someone reflects in a more open-minded manner or for some other reason, then we can reflectively evaluate the options and decide whether there's a best option. Again, epistemic identity can influence the process of this reflection. For example, which options are considered? And how options are evaluated. 3.4.2 Evaluation During reflective evaluation, we might find that an autonomous response was, in fact, the best response. In this case, reflective reasoning would result in accepting the autonomous response, even if for new and or better reasons than we considered prior to reflection, a la reflective endorsement. This reflective evaluation, however, might instead reveal that an alternative response is superior. In this case, reflection would revise the initial unreflective response to a new response. Of course, Sections 1 and 3 above remind us that we sometimes reflectively evaluate arguments and evidence under the influence of epistemic identities, especially when we feel that our epistemic identities or beliefs they entail are under attack. Section 4 Implications This algorithmic, bounded reflectivist model has implications for both philosophy and science. First, the model operationalizes reflection in ways that can guide scientific inquiry, for example, by proposing empirically trackable ways in which reflection can be triggered and influenced by identity-based thinking. The model also has implications for both scientists' reflection tests and philosophers' views about the normative value of reflection. Section 4.1 Measures of Reflection Many researchers have assumed that correct responses on reflection tests involve overcoming a default or autonomous response, hence the default interventionist account of analytic reasoning. But when researchers record participants thinking aloud as they complete these measures of reflection, they often find that participants can immediately respond correctly with no verbal or other evidence of a lured response. This suggests that the default interventionist model of reflection cannot account for all reflection test performance. The bounded reflectivist model of reflection can, however, explain these immediate and correct responses on reflection tests. In particular, the model illustrates a route to a successful response that does not involve reflection, such as when a task is low stakes, as when participants are not rewarded or punished for performing on simple arithmetic questions, and when the task is so familiar that it requires no imagination and participants' autonomous responses might be correct prior to reflection. Also, while real-time versus post-hoc verbal reports of reasoning have revealed that some correct reflection test responses do not involve reflection, which aligns with the bounded reflectivism model, we might wonder if further think-aloud protocol analysis could provide novel tests of the model. So for example, think-aloud recordings and transcripts have the potential to falsify bounded reflectivism's proposed triggers of reflection steps involved in reflection, and how other factors can influence the outcomes of each of these steps, such as identity cues or reduced cognitive load. Section 4.2 The Normativity of Reflection Recall the reflectivists who argue that reflection is crucial for good reasoning. These reflectivists think that reflection is always normatively valuable, and that is part of what anti-reflectivists deny. Bounded reflectivism accepts many of the anti-reflectivists' negative conclusions about reflection without going so far as to say that the normative value of reflection is, quote, an illusion, end quote. Hence, bounded reflectivism fulfills the need for, quote, sensible reflectivism, end quote, between reflectivism and anti-reflectivism. Bounded reflectivism also provides other normative implications about how to handle epistemic identity and the bounded value of reflection. 4.2.1 Reflective Equilibrium Bounded reflectivism's middle way between reflectivism and anti-reflectivism involves admitting that reflection's normative value is contingent. Reflection can confer normative value in some conditions and not in others, depending on factors like epistemic identity. Some have realized that reflection is not enough for reflective equilibrium. For example, some suggest that reflection must occur behind a veil of ignorance to insulate it from the undesirable impacts of epistemic identity. Some, however, have questioned the psychological plausibility of ignoring our own identity while reflecting. The bounded reflectivist model reinvigorates the plausibility of reflective equilibrium with a more realistic suggestion than Rawls' original position. Rather than veil epistemic identity, embrace it. Bounded reflectivism suggests that reflective equilibrium is more likely when reflective reasoners are motivated by shared, superordinate epistemic identities than when reflective reasoners are under the influence of narrower, less universal epistemic identities. Section 4.2.2 Reflective Scrutiny Bounded reflectivism's treatment of identity can also address the objectivity problem. Consider how the objectivity problem is manifested in metaphilosophy. When we try to justify our framework from within the framework, we end up merely re-expressing the framework rather than justifying it—for example, when we selectively focus on the desiderata that our framework was specifically designed to satisfy. Some philosophers suggest that reflection is a solution to this problem. Bounded reflectivism takes a different approach, however, holding that metaphilosophical scrutiny may require a shared, superordinate epistemic identity. Naturally, a shared superordinate epistemic identity cannot achieve external objectivity. Such objectivity may be unachievable, however, suggesting that the external objectivity problem is not endemic to bounded reflectivism. What shared superordinate epistemic identities can offer is a shared internal framework that is often achievable, for example, when scientists put aside their other epistemic identities to consider what they ought to think about a puzzle as scientists that is, within the internal framework of science. Without such shared epistemic identity or identities to provide a common internal framework, it's not clear how reflection about your view could have optimum normative force with me, and vice versa. So if reflective scrutiny is to work between people and not just within a single person, shared epistemic frameworks, such as those provided by bounded reflectivism's epistemic identities, will be necessary. 4.2. Point 3. Strategic reliabilism. Of course, this paper does not consider all of the conditions in which reflection will help or hinder our normative goals. Research can enumerate the ways reflection is used toward normative goals and test its efficacy across contexts. The resulting data could feature in a sort of strategic reliabilist account of reflection's normative value, strategic reflectivism. Reflection should be deployed in contexts where its benefits have been shown to reliably outweigh its costs. Strategic reflectivism's admission that reflection can improve our reasoning is more optimistic than the anti-reflectivism, according to which reflection, quote, gives us the illusion that we have subjected our beliefs to a rigorous screening that will improve our epistemic position, end quote, when, quote, in fact, it achieves no such thing, end quote. Similarly, strategic reflectivism's admission that reflection can produce normatively undesirable outcomes is more pessimistic than reflectivism, that sometimes characterizes normativity as quote, the ability to survive reflection, end quote. Hence, a strategic reflectivism based on bounded reflectivism could also produce a middle way between competing views about the normative value of reflection. Section 5. Conclusion Bounded reflectivism draws on philosophy and psychology to propose a unifying, empirically adequate, testable, and actionable model of reflective reasoning. Nonetheless, not all questions about reflection and identity are answered in this paper. For instance, are identity-driven and belief-driven reflection epistemically suspect, motivated reasoning, or merely epistemically rational, Bayesian reasoning? How might polarizing identity-driven reflection improve inquiry? Further attention to questions like this will certainly advance our understanding and appreciation of reflection and epistemic identity. There may also be questions about whether reflection could be normatively valuable independently of its consequences. Even some of my deontologically-minded colleagues admit, however, that they would be surprised if the value of reflection had nothing to do with its moral and epistemic consequences. For instance, if reflective reasoning made physician scientists reliably decrease the quality and longevity of their patients' lives and the accuracy of their medical theories compared to non-reflective reasoning, for example, passively accepting the decisions of some algorithm, then in these conditions, reflection seems normatively worse than its alternatives, even if the reflection produced psychological goods, for example, a sense of autonomy, self-awareness, individual reflective equilibrium, and so on. Likewise, if reflection made people reliably decide to opt out of low-risk, low-cost, convenient medical treatment that is known to drastically decrease not only their own suffering and death but also global suffering and death, but these people ended up consenting to treatment via less reflective thinking, for example a subliminal bandwagon effect, then the less reflective decision seems better than its reflective alternative. Put another way, dismissing reflection seems better than heeding it in these cases, at least partly because of consequences. And this need not be anathema to non-consequentialists. As I say elsewhere, even non-consequentialists have considered both bad results or disastrous consequences in normative theory. So even if there is more to reflection than its consequences, we may not fully disconnect consequences from the normative value of reflection. Further investigation may reveal the merits and demerits of consequence-free views of reflection. In the meantime, the bounded reflectivist model offers value to both philosophers and scientists. It delivers an algorithmic explication of reflection that unifies philosophical and scientific theories of reflection. It makes testable predictions about reflection. It guides scientific measurement of reflection. And even provides normative suggestions about how to use reflection. One side effect of bounded reflectivism's benefits is a middle way between the well-traveled paths of reflectivism and anti-reflectivism. Reflection can be normatively good, for example, when shared epistemic identities allow for reflective equilibrium, or normatively bad, for example, when reasoners refuse to adjust their commitments to the conclusions with which they identify in the face of compelling arguments and evidence. Or even normatively moot in certain, for example, familiar circumstances in which non-reflective responses are at least as good as reflective responses. Insofar as other accounts of reflection cannot deliver all of these goods, we should prefer the bounded reflectivist model of reflection. This podcast was sponsored by Payne Green's Carbon Easy, Carbon easy makes it easy for small and medium-sized businesses worldwide to reduce their carbon footprint in a measurable and publicly recognizable way. Find out how your company can meet its carbon goals at carboneasy.sjv.io forward slash birdnick. If you want to hear more, you can subscribe wherever you find podcasts. You can also find out more about me and my research at my website, birdnick.com on Twitter at bird underscore nick or on Facebook at birdnick one word. If you have suggestions or questions for the podcast, you can submit them at birdnick.com forward slash contact. And of course, if you end up enjoying the Upon Reflection podcast, then feel free to tell people about it. Online, in person, or in your review. Thanks. Music for the Upon Reflection Podcast is produced by me. On GarageBand. All of my music is shareable under a Creative Commons license. You can find more of my music on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash Birdnick.